My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome to Transmission, so glad you're tuned in. This week on the show, Clem Burke, drummer of Blondie. He joins me to discuss the band's early years, interactions with artists like Robert Fripp and Giorgio Moroder, the fashion-forward cultural shift, and numero groups Blondie Against the Odds 1974-1982 box set. I'm a huge Blondie fan, so this one is especially fun for me, and Glenn is a game conversationalist. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to remind you that if you dig our conversations about music, art, and culture, and our insistence that you can talk about art even more than a few weeks after it was released, then you should consider checking us out over on Patreon. Independent outfits are hard to come by these days, and we pride ourselves on spotlighting only the good shit. So if you appreciate the reportage, Patreon is the place to pledge and help us keep creating. All right, here's Clem Burke. It's Transmissions. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Thanks so much for joining us today on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast. Great. Great to be here. Um, yeah. What is the origin of that uh, title? Aquarium Drunkard. Well, <laughs> Are you an Aquarium Drunkard? Yeah. Aquarius I'm Drunkard? An aquarium, I'm an Aquarium Drunkard. Yeah. We're of the Aquarius age. No, it's a it's a reference to a Wilco song. Okay. There's a Wilco song that says, I am an American Aquarium Drinker. And my, uh, my boss, Justin who founded the blog in 2005 he borrowed that uh that lyric and modified it okay and now now yeah now great that's, band that's welcome that. jeff Tweedy's yeah great very talented guy huh you ever have a chance to run into those those that that crew yeah i think somewhere in europe they were opening for rem and uh famously there was a picture in rolling stone of myself with uh rem and jeff and uh courtney love and i don't know somewhere in the distant past it exists. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of stuff from the past, uh, this this box set right. is fantastic. Holy moly! Yeah, long time coming, but uh, we're happy with it. We were all took part in putting it together along with our management and uh, a guy called Steve Rosenthal, who used to have a studio called the Magic Shop, where we recorded our last album, Pollinator, and. Uh, Steve is quite an authority on remastering, and he took it to Abbey Road and remastered the original six albums. 
And, you know, they had to bake the tapes uh, that were found in various places, mostly in uh, Chris's uh, garage. I knew that he was always a bit of a hoarder, so I had a feeling he would have a, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, sometimes these box sets come out and you're, you know, like, <laughs> I'll I'll put it indelicately. A lot of times bands will just put these things out and it's like dump everything in there and uh, get it out into the world and have, you know, just, just make some money off of it. It's clear with Against the Odds that there was so much care taken, not only in the selection of the music, not only in the presentation of the music, and sonically, like talking about baking the tapes and all that stuff, not only does it sound great, but the liner notes are incredible. The The visual presentation is incredible. It's just, it's a top to bottom. I actually, uh, we've got uh, Ken from Numero Group coming on the podcast soon. Oh, Ken Chipley. And I, Ken Shepley, right. and I mentioned to him just just what a huge accomplishment this was, and and he was like, uh, yeah, you might as well, you know, put it on my tombstone at this point. I'm that proud of yeah, it. Yeah, essentially, so, um, he was the curator in the end, uh, along with Steve Rosenthal, kind of curating the uh, remixes and uh, yeah. and the band approving everything. And it was great that everyone participated in the uh, interviews for the liner notes and for the book and uh, the artwork. And our manager Tommy Manzi put a lot of effort into it. And then I think it was me who came up with the title kind of based on a lot of different uh, things. Of course, it's called Against the Odds. And uh, it was also a very contemporary reference due to the fact that the world had gone insane while we were trying to release this with the pandemic. Well, sure. Yeah. So were you all working on when, when did work on it start? Well, I think it was due to be released uh, maybe Christmas 2019. If, yeah, if not Christmas yeah. 2020, I think it got moved to because there was also the uh, vinyl shortage in general, you know, the supply chain <laughs> issues. It was very much against the odds of it, you know, when it, it would come out. Of course, it was going to come out at one point. And then, you know, we carried on with that title when we just completed our uh, tour that we did uh, beginning back in April in the UK, which uh, had been postponed several times. And so that was against the odds as well. So uh, with the tour coming up at the same time as the uh, imminent uh, release of Against the Odds, we were able to go deeper into our catalog for the lives performance. You know, we almost did like a chronological uh, beginning of uh, the first bunch of singles, you know, at the beginning of the show. And we were able to represent a lot of the songs that we don't necessarily do that much any longer. But because of the box, it all made sense to kind of all kind of synchronize at the same time, right when the, the sort of intensity of the pandemic lifted. So, uh, and it's been full steam ahead ever since then. So a uh, lot going on in Blondie world. How did it feel getting back on the road and playing shows? I mean, had that been the longest stretch or did you record a lot during the pandemic? I know you've got other projects and things like that. Did you, were you able to keep busy musically? Well, yeah, I, uh, one of the things I did uh, in between was I started a little pub rock band uh, that my friend's pub that, we kind of once things kind of loosened up a little bit, we were kind of taking a chance and doing some live performances. But I also uh, co-wrote a rock opera with my two friends of mine in England. It's kind of based on uh, the whole of London. And on, actually, it's kind of like has to do with the pandemic in some ways or essentially the end of the world is post-apocalyptic, as cliched as that may sound. But uh, the music's really great. And uh, I uh, co-wrote that online with my friends Andy and Debbie Harris. And uh, I also was able to record, you know, uh, with uh, 
you know, files. I recorded some stuff on my friend Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols, who's now playing bass in Blondie, by the way. Recorded oh, recorded wow. some tracks for his new album. And I did an album with that band, the Rock Cats, from back in the day, uh, who are doing a new record. And I, I also did some uh, one-off things. I just did a Cramps uh, tribute album with uh, Linda Gale Lewis, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's sister, which is kind of fun. And so, yeah, I was wow. able to stay active. And I was also working on my memoir, which may come out at some point. You know, it's still kind of a work in progress, but I have an agent and all that. And um, that was something to do. And I kind of cleaned house a little bit, too. I went to, started going through my archives in general. So that was yeah. uh, a big part of the early days in the pandemic when we all thought maybe it was going to last for like a couple of months or something. Sure, but, uh, sure. But yeah, and then the, we were working on doing interviews and things for the box, for the Against the Odds box at the same time and just kind of holding off until, you know, things seemed a little more uh, obvious as to how we were going to progress, you know. So, uh, yeah, so there was yeah. a lot to stay busy with during all of that. And then, you know, as I said, <clears throat> we've been going full blast. We did the tour of uh, the UK in April, May. We did uh, 15 arenas. Uh, Johnny Marr was gracious enough to be our opening act or more like a special guest on the tour. And then uh, right after that, we went into the studio and began and finished a new Blondie album as well. So we've kind of like looking at it from both ways. We're looking back and looking forward at the same time. It would be a little bit, bit bittersweet if the band had not been active upon the release of Against the Odds. But being that it's out there, it's a chronological historical record of the first what is it, 74 to 82? So the first uh, the first uh, edition of uh, Blondie World. So, Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so cool to hear that you guys were working on new oh, stuff yeah. too because that that feeling of, 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 of looking back can be, you know, uh, that's, that's great. Right. That's a nice feeling. But sometimes, you know, when a band's not active anymore, yeah, that bittersweet quality could certainly come into the picture. What did you, I mean, did you find that looking back influenced the new work at all or, or did it re-energize you? Was there anything like that at work with, with the, the connection of the two projects? Well, we're always referencing the past uh, Blondie in context of the new Blondie. I think on the album Pollinator, there's somewhat reminiscent of uh, Parallel Lines. There's a a song, Long Time, that was actually written by Dev Hines from Blood Orange. That sort of yeah. uh, echoes uh, Heart of Glass in a way in its approach and in the, in the technology and in the, in the synthesizers and the programming that was involved. And, uh, you know, there's Blondie trademarks, obviously Debbie's voice, uh, my drumming, Chris's playing, uh, the songwriting. So we're always referencing back and... Uh, but we never really dig out really old material as we did where you see in the box the evolution of Heart of Glass. You know, yeah. uh, where we had that song was was around for a long time. It was called the disco song. It was kind of a reggae, R&B type of thing. And it was always kind of on the back burner. And we brought it forward for the Parallel Lines album. Uh, whereas in the box, there's uh, the, the vinyl EP called Out in the Streets where the demos that we recorded back in uh, Queens in a basement with a guy called Alan Betrock, who was the editor of uh, a magazine or newspaper called New York Rocker at the time. And uh, of the five songs on that EP, the only one to ever be officially recorded was the so-called disco song, Heart of Glass. But the other tracks on there, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, 
uh, Thin Line, and particularly a song called Platinum Blonde, which was kind of like Debbie's calling card back in the day, kind of influenced by the New York Dolls. Never really was uh, recorded other than that one time in that basement studio in Queens in early 1975. Uh, yeah. So we never really harkened back to the old material in general. And there's some unrecorded stuff. There's a song that hadn't been released, like the song Scenery, that uh, my my high school friend Gary Valentine, who kind of started the band with us on bass back when, wrote that's on the uh, in the box. And uh, I really like the outtakes. I like the instrumentals. Uh, yeah. When... Uh, once again, my friend Frank Infante, who kind of joined us as a kind of session guy on the Plastic Letters album and played a lot of bass on that. And he and Chris would go back and forth with bass and guitar. So there's some instrumental tracks on there where really the drums and the bass are really prominent. And it was great to just hear the the raw basic track of, of certain songs like uh, I Didn't Have the Nerve to Say No is on there, um, you know, various ones. Uh, where you know it's just like the, the drums and the bass are really gelling and it's great to hear that and takes you takes me back to you know being in the studio and recording that stuff before because you get so used to hearing the finished product you forget i mean the excitement of being in the studio as you're building a track you know from the ground up which we've done on pollinator we went back to that method we were all in the studio together and we've continued that on the new record as well so uh, nice. i really enjoyed the outtakes a lot hearing that stuff is great it's cool to hear both the evolution of specific songs, like in the case of Heart of Glass, but then also just the sort of stylistic uh, back and forth and sort of like how in the early days, like, you know, there is a quote, I think, that you uh, that you you mentioned Gary Valentine, Gary Lockman, whose right. work uh, I'm primarily I know him of, through his his writing, his, his, writing oh. his esoteric writing yeah. and occult stuff like that. Right, amazing Calm. how many how many people uh, enjoy his writing. I, I know Johnny Marr and Kirk Hannett especially are big fans of his uh, writing about the occult, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he I mean he's great at it, but uh, he, you know, there's a quote from him in the liners where he says, uh, "There wasn't a concept. We just remembered those few years in the 1960s when it seemed." Uh, nearly impossible to turn on the radio and hear a bad song. And I think listening to like the early the, some of these outtakes and some of the the earlier incarnations of Blondie, you hear the R and B references, the Motown references, the the sort of surf it, it record like, girl group stuff. Yeah, all that stuff, and it feels like there was a real like like Blondie as a pop institution, as an institution of of. Uh, I don't know. It's just you, you hear a lot of variety on the on the record. You hear a lot of variety throughout the history of Blondie and it really does feel to me like a lot of that's rooted in your all in the collective groups um I don't know, just sense of pop culture in general and sort of sense of like fun and hearkening back to those those older sounds and at the new wave punk moment, you know, you're able to kind of present that in a way that felt very fresh to people, but it wasn't that there's, I always think of the, the clash, right? The clash would have the no Beatles, no stones right. or whatever, you know? And I mean, it's kind of very pretentious actually. <laughs> well, I, I, on one hand, I appreciate the sort of like, we're, we're drawing a line in the sand and we're moving forward. On the other hand, as a music lover, I hear what Blondie's doing and I hear, a continuation of all of those things or the Ramones for that matter. The Ramones sure. were a girl, a girl group with yeah. fuzz guitars and no girls, yeah, you know, bubble so. gum, but we, we were big fans <laughs> of bubble gum 
pop, you know, like uh, Ohio Express and the uh, 1910 Fruit Gum Company, things like that. We thought that music was cool. Also, you know, garage, so-called garage rock, punk rock, you know, whether it be The Seeds or, you know, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs or things like that. And, uh, you know, once we got our keyboard player, Jimmy Destrian, and he had the Farfisa organ, it kind of like uh, instantly kind of gave us that sort of... Uh, sound recognition you know that wasn't a very popular instrument at the time of course you know the whole new wave punk rock movement uh was taking from various influences that were not predominant in in popular music at the time you know of course you know i mean bands like yes and elp and things like that were the popular bands which is fine great musicians but that wasn't where we were coming from and it was very unpopular to reference things like the velvet underground or um as I mentioned, uh, you know, the Shangri-Las. And, and that's really what brought the band together, essentially, in the beginning with my partners in the band, was we all had a, a similar musical aesthetic that uh, we all kind of appreciated. And then there were the outlying influences of the Chris, which, for instance, R&B more so in uh, soundtracks and uh, me with being more like rock and roll. And then David Bowie, was a, we were all big fans of Bowie. And we always thought with the Beatles and the Stones and Bowie, you never knew what to expect from them. So the, the musical palette was wide. And uh, we kind of right. we kind of looked at it with what we did in Blondie is that way as well. We were able to go anywhere musically. I mean, the Ramones were great, but they really only did one thing, but it was fabulous. But we weren't. And then, you know, we always took from from other influences where you get us later on doing things like Rapture or Heart of Glass or being influenced by Kraftwerk and and being able to yeah. incorporate that into the aesthetic and to the simulate the sound of Blondie. Uh, which really gave us a lot of leeway, leeway to go off and do a lot of various different things, you know. So we were all big fans of craft work, you know, said it a lot. You know, we, we really thought we were being, you know, we were like experimenting with electronic music when we made Heart of Glass. You know, the, the yeah. track is buried on the, the second side of the album, track number eight. It's not a featured track. You know, back right. in the back in the day, you'd think if you were trying to have a commercial album, which our producer, Mike Chapman, was trying to make the album as commercial as possible. He wanted to have hit record we never yeah. really went into studio with that ideology we just kind of went in and, and we had the songs and we recorded them and we did what we did and see what happens but he mike was a hit songwriter you know he had written ballroom blitz uh you know uh little willie foot he had all these bubblegum glam rock songs with the swede and susie quattro yeah. can the can 48 crash so he kind of got that side of blondie and appreciated that side but um I don't know where I was going with this, but anyway, um, we had a really broad musical palette and uh, that would that worked to our advantage. Well, well, like I said, we continue to use that. And as time went on, you get us doing something like Titus High or culminating with like Rapture being influenced by rap music very early on taking taking. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, all art takes from other art. And that's kind of like a, an evolution of an artistic endeavor in a lot of ways. So uh you know, we were open-minded and everybody in the band was open-minded. I mean, they had all coming from all different sort of musical genres, kind of. We, I mean, we, I think we were the first ones on the out, on the outtakes. There's a version of uh, Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash, which uh, yeah. when we did that in 1980 for this movie, The Roadie, uh, that was not, Johnny Cash wasn't what Johnny Cash became his renaissance after working with Rick Rubin and doing that Trent Reznor song and things like that. Johnny Cash was, was not, really the preeminent like uh iconic you know person that he became he was at a lull and we decided kind of yeah. Ca yeah vaguely vaguely considered square at yeah. that point i'm sure and i, I got yeah. to meet john because i'm friends with uh his stepdaughter carlene carter who uh 
was once married to a friend of ours, Nick Lowe and all that. And uh, I got to meet John through Carlene and uh, he acknowledged uh, the fact that he knew that we were one of the first to really do uh, one of his songs and bring it into uh, the whole kind of new wave of music. Uh, very similar to when I worked with Eurythmics uh, with Connie Plank, the producer in Germany. Um, he yeah. immediately, when I'm upon being in his studio in Cologne, outside of Cologne in uh, Neunkirchen, Germany, and Connie produced Devo, uh, Can, but he also produced Kraftwerk. So when yeah. I first met Connie, when I was working on that first Eurythmics album, he immediately acknowledged the influence of Kraftwerk upon Heart of Glass and, and congratulated me and the band for being able to bring electronic music into a contemporary pop record and have success with it. So uh, pretty yeah, interesting. Where we, the, the spectrum of influences in Blondie is really very, very wide. And and the early stuff you could see, we attempted to do stuff that maybe wasn't fully executed until much <laughs> later on, i.e. Heart of Glass. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned the way those influences would get in, would get incorporated. I think about how in the, uh, you know, Fade Away and Radiate, a great song, right, where you've got Fripp. Right. And, and Fripp, well, I mean, you you note, like, uh, I think you say, uh, I was a big Crimson fan, which was uncool, but that's one of the things that makes Blondie Blondie, the little uncool influences. Yeah, was it? Now, go ahead. Obviously, now Fripp is considered very cool, and I guess he was definitely considered cool by certain folks then, but... I just I love what you're talking about there, which is this thing of like you're not hemmed in by any particular uh, aesthetic. I, I I like when a band can do. I mean, you guys cover the doors on this collection, right. you know what I mean? So it's like I like when a band can take things from all over the spectrum and put them through the filter that is the group's collective creativity, and then it becomes whatever you know. And Blondie's one of those bands where it feels like the you know, it feels like the 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 only criteria was is it a good song and can we make it work or something like that. I don't know if that was if there was more advanced criteria well, than that. You know, sometimes you know? we just do things that seem seem so incongruous in the context of new wave punk rock that it's it's almost super punk rock to go outside of the box so much. Um, uh, you know, with with Robert Fripp, uh you know, at the time also he was, you know, had worked with uh with David, you know, and and Iggy on, you know, mm -hmm. particularly on Heroes and on the Low album with David Bowie. And, you know, David was a big help to us early on. Our first national tour was uh, supporting Iggy and David Bowie on a tour around the States. And uh, also what I was going to say about Robert was um, he was in New York and he became a friend of ours. And I, I was a big King Crimson fan and uh, it was great to it's great to work with him and uh, you know, we played at CBGB. We did I Feel Love with Robert doing all like the synthesizer staccato oh, cool. like, stuff. And uh, yeah, it was really uh, it was an interesting time. And he, he really adds a tremendous amount to that particular song, Fade Away and Radiate, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to pop back to the sort of very even before you joined Blondie, but when you when you linked up with the group in, I guess, maybe 75, is that yeah, when it was? It was early 75 or late 74, something somewhere along there. Yeah. Yeah, you were already... You were already like a, a distinguished drummer. I mean, you you had you had trained, and then I was blown away to read that you had auditioned for LaBelle and Patti right. Smith. And I wondered what were those auditions like? Yeah, I, Do you I missed remember them? I, I missed the Bruce Springsteen audition because famously he also had an <laughs> ad in the back of the uh, Village Voice, and I think it 
because if you read about that, it was like no junior Ginger Bakers wanted, you know, at the time, because he was uh. wanted very much, you know, like <laughs> an Al Jackson Jr. at Booker T. I mean, Max is an amazing drummer. Um, I mean, you you could have fit that vibe yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. You're 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 that kind of yeah. yeah. I mean, I was but, looking for uh, you know uh, getting back to the Doors and Bowie. You know, I I've said it, continuing to say it. I was looking for the front person for my band that had that power of a Bowie or or Jim Morrison or Mick Jagger and Debbie certainly fulfill, fills that uh, category for me. Um, yeah, the addition for LaBelle. I mean, I just went in. I remember they said they were all sitting there like play something funky and. You know, just kind of played. And then with Patty, uh, you know, we were all on the same scene and I knew she was looking for uh, a drummer. And funny enough, uh, the drummer she did get, J.D. Doherty, had been the drummer in a band called The Mumps. Uh, famously, Lance Loud, uh, there was the first reality TV show in the 70s, American Family. I don't know if you've ever mm. seen that, that a family in Santa Barbara. Well, Lance had a band in New York called uh, The Mumps. And when... Uh, when JD finally got his gig with Patty, I was also filling in for him with that band, The Mumps, at the time. Uh, it's still to this day, you know, I play with a lot of different people. Blondie's the home base, I mean, for all of us, but we're all able to go off and do other things, especially with, uh, you know, the history of, of Blondie now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I had been in bands ever since I was a teenager, you know, playing CYOs and dances, Jewish community centers, department store opening, grocery store openings, all that. I was... I kind of had a leg up because there was a lot of people. For instance, Gary Valentine, Gary Latchman, never played the bass before he joined Blondie. You know, he knew a few chords. And so he was very much in that tradition of what the whole do-it-yourself punk rock aesthetic of you don't really necessarily know how to be a virtuoso musician in order to write a song or to be on stage. And and I've said also many times, CBGB was like a workshop. You could go up there and, and fuck up. You know, it didn't really matter. Sure. And this day sure. and age, a little different. Everybody has a phone. So, you know, I mean, Bob Gruen <laughs> yeah. captured a lot of that stuff. There's the famous with the Ramones arguing one another on stage at CBGB, you know, like things like that <laughs> could happen. Nowadays, everything needs to be so kind of, uh, you know, pre preordained to a certain degree to be so perfect before people feel it's okay to to, to do it publicly which i kind of I, I sometimes i go and if i see a band and they're really bad i kind of enjoy it more sometimes <laughs> yeah know? yeah totally like they're trying I get you that. know young kids trying like because i can relate to that as like i said you know we everything we did at the early days necessarily wasn't completely done to its complete potential until later on sure yeah. sure when the when you join the group, I mean, I think your your style, like uh, not your musical style, but your sartorial style. You were a, you were a snappy dresser. You looked cool, and that was a big draw to the band. Blondie, famously one of the coolest looking bands of all time. I mean, in my opinion, I uh, I remember right when my my wife and I first started dating, um, she had a Blondie poster uh in a room and i remember just like being in there and just looking at this poster being like this is the coolest looking band nobody has ever had a, a, a like i love the i mean the ramones are cool looking yeah. you know lots of new york bands are cool looking i like i think television looks cool oh, yeah. on the cover of marky awesome, moon that... but you know yeah, but, but you, you guys you guys really had a look yeah. and it was really dialed in where did when when did you get interested in like clothes and and how did you uh how did you kind of piece together that aesthetic well you know we were into vintage so-called vintage or so thrift shop clothing very early on i mean the, 
the stuff that we wore on parallel lines, I think we bought like we got those suits up, new old stock, like ten dollars. And a friend of <laughs> yeah. mine had a, a an Army Navy store, and in the basement, they were just had stuff on pallets that they were selling for weight, which was all like clothes from the sixties. And uh, you know, we just really liked the style of obviously like the fifties and the Beatles and all that kind of look. And uh, you know, that was like uh, you know dressing in black, like the Velvet Underground and. But I, I always kind of liked clothes. I mean, you know, like the Beatles, uh, you know, they were like the fashion plates for me, you know, that that style. And I think we incorporated all of that. It kind of went hand in hand with the with the musical references at the time as well that we were we were incorporating into the sound of the band. And of course, Debbie's whole image really kind of harkens back to a 50s movie star, you know, obviously the obvious Marilyn Monroe. And, uh, you know, we, we were kind of like a glam band in a way. We, we wanted to be glamorous, you know, at the same time. And also the, the band Dr. Feelgood, who uh, kind of precursors of punk rock, they were a pub rock band that we were all big fans of, uh, their particular style, but especially the singer Lee Brillo and uh, the guitarist Wilco Johnson. Wilco would dress all in black with a black black and red telecaster, and Lee we would dress them all in white, but in like skinny suits. Before they called those kind of suits skinny suits, you know, we would shrink clothes yeah. to make them fit tighter on us and things like that. I always, I always yeah. liked clothes, and I think that was a common denominator amongst the people in Blonde. We all, we all were a bit, uh, you know, interested in fashion, and I think we were very fashion forward because it's funny, you know, when you look at. I think we're just about to get out of style now. <laughs> I think finally, with Harry Styles, everything's like baggy, you know. But for a long time, okay. it's all been about people in black and wearing Ramones t-shirts and all. Now kids are going for the color now. I think a little bit, which is good too. Yeah, it's all it's all about ebbs and yeah. flows, cycles and stuff like that. Yeah, but it's funny. But we I always think kept it... the same look the whole time, basically. So when you look at old pictures, it's not like looking at some. Uh, metal band that's that's still around today they all had the poodle haircuts and now they, they, they now they just like blondie did in 1975 you know it's, it's funny right you know, right yeah like the ramones or whatever you know Hey, Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part. It makes it easy with unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million-plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now, Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners.
you mentioned uh, you mentioned England and Doctor Feelgood, and I know that there you took it. Uh, when exactly did you take this 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 trip to England, where you really got immersed in the pub rock scene, right? Because yeah. you went out there. It, when was it that? It was uh, late winter, seventy uh, five. Uh, uh, after we had spent a year with the band, I went. I had a friend, a girlfriend that lives work going to school in London, and I went and visited her and stayed for about two months and uh, got to see uh, Doctor Feelgood. Uh, Eddie and the Hot Rods, um, Banquet, Curse All Flyers, and the whole pub rock thing. And I also saw the Stranglers at that time. I, I didn't see the Pistols, but they had just begun to go, start going and visited, uh, you know, Malcolm and Vivian's store and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Were you were you already really into that pub rock sound? Uh, had those records made their way over to the U.S.? Or did you kind of get immersed in it while you were there? Yeah, they didn't particularly make their way over, uh, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I just saw the I saw the uh, the similarity between what was going on in New York with what was going on in the whole pub rock scene, like the minimalism once again, or covering uh, like Eddie and the Hot Rods covering uh, like '96 Tears and songs from the '60s, right. and Doctor Feelgood covering you know they kind of like were like a like they reminded me of like Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers in a way, but and and you know you going back to like '50s and '60s R and B music and you know it was a whole other musical spectrum it would have nothing to do with as mentioned that what was contemporary at the time where you know peter frampton comes alive no offense peter's great and uh or whatever you know yes and as i mentioned all of that it was you know it was the backlash to that not that that music was bad but we were doing something very different and i felt that camaraderie what was going on in the uk you could see it was like new york and london are very kind of connected in a lot of ways you know Sure, some sort of psychic connection yeah. between the yeah. culture. And then there we were always and, influenced by the British music, you know, the so-called British invasion, the big influence on was, Blondie. Was that was that the first stuff like, you know, the Beatles and the British invasion bands? Was that the first stuff that made you want to play music? Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody of my yeah. generation, they all, everybody says right. the same thing, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's kind of what yeah. started it. But I I like the remember- I like the Four Seasons a lot, too. Okay, yeah. so I mean, yeah, that's that's funny. I just uh, was actually just checking out the the Four Seasons record where they kind of go a little bit psych. Uh, I forget. Yeah, I think it's called maybe the Amer, not the American Dream. Yeah, there maybe, is something uh, anyway, like that, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah, uh, Bob, what's it, Bob uh, Gordio and uh, the songwriters. Yeah, I think I did. The, it's kind of like what happened in the in the seventies too. With uh, everybody went disco. I mean, you had like. Uh, Blondie doing Heart of Glass, and but you had the Stones also doing Miss You. Ed Rod doing Do You Think I'm Sexy? They were like this right. kind of everyone decided they were going to do a so-called like dance song, like all at the same time. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there was that era like when the Temptations doing Psychedelic Shack and things like that. Which that record oh, that's rules. Amazing. That's a oh, great. That's the that's, Motown that's one you of the all time. Motown in general, obviously. Yeah, you know, that's just the stuff's just like amazing. Yeah, we we yeah, just that's... played in Detroit, and uh, all all the while in the dressing room before the show, I was just blasting Motown like for a couple of hours before. It was great. Nothing, nothing better, nothing yeah. better than the Funk Brothers. The one of the all time, like amazing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned though that you know that everybody kind of went disco, and 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 Heart of Glass. One of the things that I find very interesting about Blondie is that. Uh, one, as a drummer, you didn't seem particularly weirded out by electronic rhythm. You were fine with it, it seemed. Because, I mean, you're on that stuff and often playing along with it, and there's an interesting back and forth between some of that stuff. But also, from the disco side of things, I mean, 
I'm sure there were people who viewed that as like maybe y- you guys doing something that wasn't you know pure or wasn't rock and roll right. to do to do disco. But I wonder, you know, uh, when I look back, I, I like I read interviews of like Brian Eno from that era, and you mentioned Donna Summer. Um, the a lot of cutting edge people were really into yeah. good disco as well. I mean, how did you feel about it as a, as a movement? You were, you were into it. Well, there was a place that I always talk about club 82, where we played, I had a band called sweet revenge and Debbie and Chris had the band, the stilettos. It was a kind of like the tail end of the glam rock scene. I mean, you'd find people like Lou Reed hanging out there. There's bands called the magic tramps, uh, Wayne cat, Wayne County and the backstreet boys before the backstreet boys stole their name or whatever. Um, you know, it was a band <laughs> called Backstreet Another Pretty Boys. Face, uh, would play there, but it was essentially a gay disco. They would have rock bands uh, once a week. And the backdrop, even in between the rock bands, whether the New York Dolls were playing or the Stilettos were playing, would be uh, contemporary disco dance music, uh, like uh, Casing the Sunshine Band or, you know, Shame, Shame, Shame or the LaBelle's Rock the Boat. And all that stuff is great. You know, it's like it's organic. You know, it's not synthesized. Uh, which I kind of appreciated. It's kind of an extension of Motown in a lot of ways. It's dance music. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, we, you know, I was open to that. Uh, we always like, we like Casey and the Sunshine Band and things like that. I think they're going on tour now with the B-52s on their final. B-52s are doing a farewell tour and they have Casey as the opening act, which is great. Um, yeah. I, once again, we were just open-minded, you know, open-minded. I mean, by in in my heart, I'm a rock and roller for sure. You know, and, you know, Mata Hoople and Bo- but Bowie, uh, you know, with, with David when he did Young Americans, you know, like if you follow that pattern, you know, it was all just all about being inspired and then taking from uh, other sources and just like doing your own spin on it, which is, I think, what yeah. we do as well as what people like the Beatles and Bowie did. You know, when you started working with 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 people like Giorgio Moroder, I mean, was that an, was that was there an adjustment for you as a drummer to this like different kind of timekeeping or playing with different feels or you know what where, where do you what was that what was that like for you and did it feel was there any part of you that did feel a little bit like hey I don't know about this you know or or were you pretty pretty game No, I mean I've tried to stay open minded. I mean, famously, I wasn't big on Heart of Glass as far as doing it live back when and. Uh, it took a lot, lot to put that together because it was before the times of, uh, you know, MIDI. And so we had to do a construct a, a basically a click track was constructed with the bass drum and the arpeggiated synthesizer. Uh, no, I yeah. was open to working with Giorgio. He really wasn't in a position to work with a group, but he was more used to working with an individual artist where he kind of had full control over that, i.e. Donna Summer, for instance. So uh, sure. with Blondie, you know, uh, there was everybody had an opinion and everybody was kind of on equal footing when we went in the studio and things like that. And every, I think you can see it in different the way uh, everyone expresses themselves in various ways in the Blondie, context of a Blondie song. So Giorgio wasn't really prepared for that. But um, it was probably the first time I recorded to a pre-programmed synthesizer track because I said we built the we constructed Heart of Glass from the bottom up. And then when we later when we did Atomic, uh, we uh, also at that time I think we we constructed a, a loop with the with the drum machine and the synthesizer that I played along to. But with Georgia, it was just kind of going in. He had the arrangement sequenced, and we played along to that with the click track. And I was I was open to working with him. You know, I could like I said, we were all fans of what he had done previous. You know, 
but he was coming from a different place. When I when we work with Mike Chapman and with Richard Goddard, our earlier producer, they were both kind of became the the extra member of the band. They were, you know, Richard had written hit songs. My boyfriend's back. He was in the band called The Strange Loves. He wrote I Want Candy and things like that. And as I mentioned, yeah. Mike at a time was trying to be a an artist, a performer himself, and you know, had written all those hit songs. So they understood what it was like to work in the context of a group in a recording studio and they kind of used that to to their and our advantage whereas Giorgio just was had more of a tunnel vision approach where he wanted to take Debbie and you know so we tried to work with Giorgio but I mean we had great success obviously with Call Me it was amazing sure sure but the that natural connection yeah, didn't wasn't quite there, yeah. exist the way it, yeah yeah it's I I wanted to pop back to another song that I really enjoy um that you to go back to to Gary, uh, who's right. been a running theme through it. Uh, I I really love uh, "I'm Always Touched by Your Presence," oh, yeah. dear, which is a great tune. He had already left the band when Blondie cut that, though, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, he announced well, that he was going to leave the band uh, after recording of the Plessis Letters album, and uh, I, I think I got outvoted on him being uh, kind of told to leave prior to the recording and then i i really uh you know i lobbied tremendously for that song and you know it's kind of a metaphysical reference in there and you could see how his mind is working and uh yeah it's kind of his swan song and we needed that song on that album you know we had success with the song denis which debbie came up with as far as cover song by a doo-wop group randy and the rainbows but we needed the follow-up single off of plastic letters to continue the success that we began to achieve overseas. So Presence Dear was an ideal song. And I think it went on, it was covered by Annie Lennox and people like that. And uh, it's a great song, but yeah, Gary was not in the band when we recorded that. And that's when I brought my other friend in Frank Infante came into the band at that point uh, and was a tremendous help. I mean, I, I always say, say, you know, after Frank was there and then we went to LA and we did some shows with Frank, as a five piece, uh, then a friend of ours, Sable Star, uh, recommended uh, Nigel Harrison to maybe play bass. And, uh, you know, when, once Nigel was in the band, we, Chrysalis, by that time, you know, the, the crazy thing that happened was while we were making Plastic Letters, our manager, Peter Leeds, at the time was working behind the scenes to get us off of the, the indie label private stock to be signed to Chrysalis. So that mm-hmm. it was, it was uh, under the auspices of, private stock we were recording they were they were financing that record but by the time it was released it, it was on chrysalis when we had a did a buyout with with the we had a you know a, a production deal and, and we have to be bought out of but it was well worth it in the end um but uh when we fully formed the band with on the upon the release of plastic letters chrysalis put us on a a six-month worldwide tour Went, which that included having Frank and Nigel in the band, and that was the band that went on, went on to make Plastic Letters. With, with so there was a lot of new elements for Plastic for, for I'm sorry that went on to make Parallel Lines. It was a lot of a lot right. of new elements. We had a new producer and we had two new members in the band, and all of that added up to what uh, Parallel Lines became. Yeah, but yeah, Gary was out of the band, and uh, yeah, yeah, I. I what 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 was it like when when you were able to when you had the five piece group? I mean, did it just did it feel like it just opened you up as a band live to to kind of like expand the sound? Because obviously, with parallel lines, you get a, a kind of 
an even more expansive kind of sense of what Blondie could be? Was it pretty exciting? I mean, I'm sure you'd played in five pieces or whatever number of bands, but I mean, did it sort of feel kind of like it was a, it was a, it was a freeing thing to have extra, just the ability to go a little further? Yeah. Well, we had two guitars and Frank is very, was a very accomplished guitar player. Chris is a great guitar player and a great songwriter. Frank was more in the, uh, you know, the the hard rock and roll world and kind of was very uh, accomplished as a lead guitar player and in the style of like a Jeff Beck or, a, you know, Eric right. Clapton. And that's kind of what he grew up on. And he, uh, you know, with the Les Paul and all of that. And uh, yeah, it expanded the sound. And Nigel was, uh, you know, uh, he had been in uh, the band Silverhead, uh, English band that uh, was on Led, uh, that toured, I think, with Led Zeppelin and people like that. He had been a musician all his whole life. So it was a kind of a, both of those people were, they were young, but they were kind of seasoned uh, as I was, as you mentioned, you know, I had been playing since I was a t- early young teenager. So when I got on yeah. the scene at the CBGBs in New York, you know, I was more or less accomplished at what I could do, whereas a lot of people had just started playing. So yeah, yeah it ha- definitely yeah. helped. I mean, we expanded the sound completely with, uh, you're completely correct about that, about the Parallel Lines album. A lot of the basic tracks Another- were done, as you can hear, well, with Plastic Letters even, with was Frank and Chris on bass, so just done as like guitar, bass, and drums, and things like that. Yeah, so like a solid yeah. core to the tunes, right. and then you can kind of dress yeah. that up in different ways, yeah. I mentioned that there's a there's a cover of uh, uh, The Doors on here, Moonlight Drive, and I, I was curious, as I was kind of like bouncing around, I was thinking a couple things. One, were I mean, are, are you a, are you a Doors fan? Do you remember who suggested that one? Well, we're all fans of the Doors. I mean, the, the Doors are kind of the, uh, you know, the the West Coast version of the Velvet Underground, as far as uh, I think I'm concerned. You know, Morris Morrison yeah. was a poet. He had very dark lyrics. Uh, their sound was uh, not what was uh, considered to be particularly uh, the dominant sound of the day. They had jazz elements in their playing. Uh, and I think we did that song uh, because we had uh, heard that uh, Raymond Zarek, uh, the guitar, the organist of the Doors, was coming to a show at the Whiskey, so we worked that up. And we were all fans of the Doors for sure. Yeah, I I think that the Doors are an interesting group because they're they a lot among a lot of like you know whatever uh, underground indie rock record snobs or whatever. The Doors have fallen out of favor in a pretty major way in terms of people really disliking them, but. I find them a very interesting group. Yeah. One, I mean, the Stooges uh, very clearly were massive Doors fans, and so right. you can hear a direct line there. I think Iggy Pop also uh, fronted a version of a band with Ray Manzarek uh, at one time where they were talking about him possibly replacing Morrison after Morrison had died. Yeah, yeah. okay, so there's that. And then, of course, you get the X connection, sure. you yeah. know, where, like, and so Soul so Kitchen and Ray produced the first X album, yeah. Right. So you get this interesting thing this interesting sense of like there's a there's a proto-punk element oh, absolutely. to the doors absolutely. in a, in a major in a major way. Absolutely. I mean we always thought that. I mean like I said they they are the West Coast version, you know, as uh, they they bookend the uh the Velvet Underground as far as same era same yeah. Uh, yeah. you know darkness in the in the in the mood of their music for the most part and uh much more commercially you- successful obviously. So they had it <laughs> both true. ways, really. They had the poetry <laughs> and they had the, the commercial success, which is pretty which rare. Is, well, that's 
I would like to think that's <laughs> an element of how our success in Blondie, you know, we kind of did it our way and incorporated a lot of things that weren't necessarily thought to be uh, to outright commercial at the time. That's right. That's right. Did you ever hear that uh, the remix that came out the Rapture in the Riders? early two thousand? Rapture Riders. Yeah, when yeah. I DJ, I, I use that. I, I, okay, I DJ cool. occasionally. I just I just DJed in Ibiza. Uh, Marky Ramon and myself, we were both in Ibiza. We were contracted to go over there and DJ at uh, a thing in Ibiza. And I always play. I kind of wind up my uh, my DJ sessions with that song quite a bit. It's great. It is it's just so crazy how how beautifully it works, yeah, you know, and 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 how how well it works. Do you like DJing a lot? Is that a fun yeah. fun gig well, for you? Know, I like I like to do it with vinyl, you know. But I wasn't I was mm -hmm. uh, you know everything's on computer and I prefer the vinyl like you're playing. I DJ at this tiki bar in Vegas sometimes, and it's kind of like you know it's just a room of people hanging out and you're playing records for them, like kind of like you could be doing in your living room. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah. like it. I like DJing. Yeah, it's fun. You know, it which which tiki bar? I'm curious. Is it Frank's? I'm trying to think of the name of it now. They do shrunken heads. Yeah. What's I, it? I, maybe Contiki? Yeah, Contiki. I'm I not... think it might be it. Yeah. They, they did shrunken yeah. heads of uh of Debbie, Chris, and myself that they have in the cabinet. They they shrink heads of celebrities and or people that you know in bands and things. And uh yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, I would, yeah, that's, that's cool that you, that you were out there DJing, yeah. um, your career. I mean, you know, obviously we've mostly been focusing on yeah. Blondie, but I couldn't have you on without asking you a little bit about, um, about Dylan and how you play out on play. You play on knocked out loaded. Right. Uh, yeah. A couple of tracks. That's, that's you on. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, I, I've spent a couple of, couple of weeks in the studio with Bob and, and with Dave Stewart at, in uh, London. I also did a, a a video with Bob, uh, when the night comes falling video. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what was, what was it, what was it like being in the studio with him? I mean, is he, uh, is he as mysterious and mercurial as everybody, you know, imagines? Well, sure. There's that element to him. And I mean, we communicated musically and, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I'll give you an example with Bob, you know, he, he, He's a fan of music. I mean, I, I had a friend, my girlfriend, Kathy Valentine, at the time from the Go-Go's. We were at a party and Bob was there. And uh, he came over and the first thing he said, he knew who Kathy was. And the first thing he said to her was, how do you feel about the bangles? Go figure, right? Bob <laughs> Dylan's asking the girl from the Go-Go's about the bangles. Wow. Which is kind of like, you know, you know, it's kind of incongruous. You don't think Bob's going to talk about uh, Ferlinghetti or Ginsburg or something or who knows what. Jack Kerouac. You're, he's a big music fan. You ever, you ever see that video where he's talking to the those kids and he's asking them what they think about Rat, the 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 hair metal band? Um, maybe. Well, uh, say, stuff, anyway. Yeah. yeah. I, I no, just, Bob, just to I your mean, point. We had, a, we, had a couple, we had a couple of dinners and you know uh, there was a pub next door to the to the studio called the Harringay, which at the time uh, it was in an area called Crouch End that was yet to be gentrified at the time. And we, we'd go in there, it's just like a working man's pub, as they call it, smoky, people smoking cigarettes. We'd sit in there and have a beer and just kind of hang out, you know? Yeah. Nice. I mean, obviously, nice. it was a highlight of my uh, musical life, working with, with Bob briefly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about somebody who's got the poetry oh, going. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. His last album's great. That thing oh, that he the, put uh... out during the during the pandemic, too, that, that 21 minute song, what's it called? Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, Not mur murder most foul. Yeah, murder most foul. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's amazing, huh? That whole album. I mean, mind good. mind blowing. Yeah. That whole record, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, rough and rowdy ways. Yeah. That I think that was one of the things that got me through twenty twenty yeah, right, for right, sure. Right, exactly. That and the Bruce record. Yeah, which was amazing uh, as well. The Springsteen record that came out during the pandemic. You know, House of a Thousand the... Guitars and uh, yeah, yeah, those, yeah, those songs. I'm a big Bruce yeah. fan too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, and another thing I wanted to ask you about was how you did you did a study, right? In in was it in 2008? Yeah, it's ongoing. Where... It's ongoing. It's been <laughs> ongoing. Yeah, the the Klemberg drumming project. Yeah, I'd love to hear I'd love to hear more about how that came together and what sort of what sort of findings cuz well, maybe you could explain it to listeners who don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Well, you can find it online Klemberg drumming project. Uh, there was a, a chap in the UK, uh, Dr. Marcus Smith, who was a, a Blondie fan. And uh, we were playing at Wembley Arena, and he had written me a letter that I had received prior. So I invited him to uh, the concert at Wembley, and we met backstage. And he explained to me how he, well, at the time, he was also the Olympic, uh, one of the UK Olympic boxing coaches. And he wanted to make an analogy, basically, between sport and drumming. And he thought I was a prime candidate to expound upon that based on my physicality and how I perform. And he was well aware of what I did because he was a Blondie fan. So it was going to kind of be a one-off thing because it was in the early days of the reformation of the band as well. And uh, turns out Marcus Smith was able to uh, conduct uh, various experiments upon me for a good 10 years where he became found a th- came up with a thesis and all the blood levels, uh, heart rates, um, then they set up a lab in the in the at the university, Chichester University. I would go up there and do physical exercises and play drums and on and on. And then we would do seminars for like kids with autism and things like that. And I think they got Roland to sponsor them with a lot of electronic drum sets for kids. And uh, yeah, so I'm kind of the figurehead of it. And the, the, it came out, you know, that I was basically my based on my heart rates and uh, blood levels and all that I was in uh, as uh, it was analogous to like a top uh, you know like athlete like a British like a like a footballer or, and it was controversial because yeah. they compared me to the guy Ronaldo who's obviously a lot younger than me and a whole you know they're saying I'm more <laughs> fit than Ronaldo and we launched it on BBC News and yeah I mean, it, was a, it was a positive spin on and then they had you know in the London Times they had like picture of moon a picture of bonham and a picture of me and saying you know these people obviously they was tragic what happened to them and it's a positive spin on it and i'm, I'm actually about to get a i've got a received an honorary doctorate from uh, gloucestershire university a music doctorate and i'm about to get another one from uh, chichester in october well that's yeah. fantastic yeah, no it's just a that's positive fantastic. thing it's it's very scientific and it's very uh you know it's repetitive they have to keep doing i think obviously with any kind of uh science scientific technology it has to be done over and over and over and over to prove it you know whether it's a, a, a something for like for moderna or whatever you know it's got to be done right. it has to be proven so and they they, right. they enjoyed doing it and i was I, I was you know i was happy to be a part of it it made sense to me because i, I was always i mean to this day you know I, I i try to be able to in order to do what i do it involves a, a certain amount of physical exertion so yeah, yeah, you know, it's 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 not this exact same thing, but I I did watch I was recently watching a documentary. I watched that Gordon Lightfoot documentary right. and he was talking about how well, for singing cuz he's still well and he's still out on the road touring and he was like I exercise he exercises something like 4 
hours a day yeah, or something. something. He's got like a really, really intensive reg- regiment. And he was like, but I have to do it because I have to stay in. It, it requires me to stay in shape in order to go out and do this thing. I mean, touring is not an easy right. thing uh, on, right. on the body, right. you know? We, we, so it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's a physical uh, endeavor. And, uh, you know, we also, they also study, you know, the, 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 the physicality and the mentality of drumming. And I, I don't know if you ever saw the, uh, the Glenn uh, Campbell documentary. I still haven't watched that one. You know, no. because he was, you know, in the, the throes of Alzheimer's, but he still had his ability to play the guitar and sing. Right, and, and you right. would think that would be a faculty that would kind of go away based on that. But he still knew how to play the guitar. So there's something to yeah. playing a musical instrument. And, and obviously your mind and your body has to be in sync in order to do that. So that's kind of what the, the Klemberg Drumming Project was kind of elaborating upon as, as far. And also just the whole, there's more to it than having a beer and walking on stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially yeah, I, as you get older, you know, that's the whole thing. I mean, I mean, rock and roll was middle-aged when Blondie first started. Rock and roll is not middle-aged anymore. Rock and roll is an, a very old art form now. I consider yeah. what we do to be rock and roll at the end. Yeah. Of the, when people say, what kind of music do you play? I say rock and roll. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, sp- well, speaking of that, uh, I, I just wanted to let you know that I, I checked out the the Empty Hearts oh, uh, record, too, to get ready for this and thought, I mean, I'm I'm a real big fan of of a lot of those cars, guys, but cars and definitely Elliot and the Cars. And so I was excited to hear that. And I, it, you know, listening to it, it really sounded to me like, uh, well, I think maybe you've done maybe two records yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, we Is did that right? one on a label at a universal called 429. And the last one was on Steve Van Zandt's label, Wicked Cool. They're, they're yeah. very supportive of the band. Yeah. It sounds like a, a group where it's a bunch of people clearly having a lot of oh, fun yeah. and really just bashing it out, not not thinking too much or yeah. just enjoying what's happening, which is a cool thing. Yeah, to we're hear, all fans so. of one another's playing. And, uh, you know, on, on this record, the last one, uh, we had uh, Ringo Starr play drums on one track. I played tambourine. And then on the first record, we were fortunate enough to have Ian McLaughlin from the, the Faces and the Small Faces play keyboards. And soon thereafter, Ian uh, passed, and uh, it was yeah. great to work yeah. with Ian. And uh, yeah, those records are out there. The band is kind of not uh, functioning at the moment, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows what'll happen? You sounds like you're more than busy with Blondie. Yeah, and uh, yeah, th- and that be that being the case, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and chat with me, man. Yeah. It's been a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, appreciate your time, and you know, everybody just kind of be nice to one another. I keep saying that. I mean, the fucking world's fucked up, man. I'm in the fumble. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your listen. You can support this podcast by checking out our Patreon page. Your support helps us keep making the show. We'd love it if you also left a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, which helps new folks find the show. And be sure to click the subscribe button if you like the episodes that you've heard so that you never miss a new one. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. We are a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. 
Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and the show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another all-new episode featuring Joe Rainey. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>